Welcome to the 21st episode of In Light of the Gospel. I'm Dan Blatz, and today I'll be speaking to Abe Dyke. He's a friend from church. He's been a deacon for many years at our congregation, and he's a very steady fellow. Everybody knows him as someone who is more than on time, usually a bit early. We often tease him about that, but it's a really good trait that he's been able to use to his benefit in life for sure. In this conversation, you'll hear about how he, like a lot of Mennonites, went back and forth from Canada, Mexico to Canada and to Seminole for a while. And But more importantly, you'll hear how he came to a very clear, simple understanding of the gospel. It took a lot of things in his life to finally get him to that place, but his, his presentation and understanding of the gospel is so clear and precise. It's a beautiful thing. And also, if you stick around to the end, you'll see or hear some really good tips on raising good children. Abe has five children. The oldest is in her early 20s, and then Alex is 18, and Philip and all the rest. You know, I, I won't name them all here now, but uh, they're stable, they're hardworking, they're willing to help, they're always serving in some way. And he has some really good pointers. Him and Lisa have done a great job raising them. He's got a great marriage, like I said. So I think it'll be a real benefit to you. So thanks a lot for tuning in. I do appreciate if you share these. If you know someone that knows Abe Dyke, share this message with them. And uh, if someone could benefit from it, you know, if you, if you subscribe to the channel on YouTube, if you like it, if you share it, all that kind of stuff helps the internet algorithms to promote the video more and then more people get to hear the gospel, more people will hear these stories. I know that 99% of my audience is Mennonite and our background is Mennonite, so it's been a real joy to see more and more people hearing the truth of the gospel through these talks and through these conversations. So thanks again for tuning in. I appreciate this. God bless you. I've known you obviously now, like we were saying, for about 17, 18 years, and you and I are in some ways kind of very opposites. Mm -hmm. You're notoriously early, and we're often notoriously <laughs> late, and somehow we ended up on the same leadership board, and we're serving together, and okay. I really appreciate you guys, and hopefully yeah, you guys have learned to appreciate us. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I think it's something you need that vice versa, balance each other out, right? Yeah. I'm always you know, very unpatient and early, like you said, and often try to say everything in one word, whereas I don't take enough time to sometimes explain myself too good, whatever, right? Because I feel like I might bore people if I carry on okay, to talk too long, so. Yeah. But um, I think probably, like just looking at our church even, I think a lot of stuff gets done because of your, like, let's get stuff done. Let's yeah. make some action happen here, right? So. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, and I think, so we, I think we need both kind of gifts, kind of, right? Where yeah. we, it's part of life is shaping and molding one another, right? And And then, in the areas where you feel the most is where you're the most opposite often i think right right so so if you take us back way back you were born in mexico right 1978 you said yeah february 22nd 1978 um born in mexico in chihuahua um so those that are from chihuahua will remember where chihuahua is and in the northern Campo 63. Campo so 63. The, That'll mean something to somebody. Yeah, so the people that come from Chihuahua will know. Uh, I think that the DARP was actually called Augefeld. Okay. But 63, they're all numbered. So most people just remember them by numbers. Um, I think my in-laws were from 40-something. And yeah. I, I don't know the Campos. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing your parents would probably know where, where oh, 63 sure. is. The um, So basically, the, the villages are set up in a way. They're a street in the middle. Neighbors on each side, maybe five-acre lots. They're about two kilometers long. And then you have a schoolhouse usually in the middle. I think uh, we had to go to church in couple twice, honestly, 62, which was, and then I think there was like at least four four villages, four four compos that shared one church, right? Okay. But each each compo would have their own schoolhouse. 
kind of in the middle of the of the darp of the village and so that's where i was uh, born or raised till uh, most of my life till i was 16 to my parents henry and sarah dyke yeah um my mom was uh the daughter of uh, abram and, and sarah tishrob my grandpa actually he was part of developing the northern region when they when the mennonites moved to mexico i think in 22 he was very young but when they bought the northern part of it in that region okay he was part of developing measuring everything out and, and getting established so my my grandparents house in couple 63 was one of the the first ones built i'm not sure exactly the first one but one of the very first ones and so my mom was born there she was the uh, second youngest of 10. okay um born in the same house raised went to the same school all her life and my dad was born um two parents jacob and elizabeth dyke grew up very very poor um move from place and place to place my grandpa he was a uh, just the opposite of your mom very very opposite um so my mom grew up very successful parents they had their own business the cheese factory i think they always had a store worked really hard always very work ethic was very important and worked really hard growing up and very stable i think as far like financially stable and and like uh, responsible and whereas my dad grew up very very poor uh, my grandpa jake jacob was a uh, herdsman just work wherever you could get hired every village that needed a herdsman he would you know obviously free living at the end of the village and um, my dad later told me that that's all he knew he was a good herdsman but he didn't know any mechanical steady. nothing steady so, so very very poor your steadiness <clears throat> would come from more from your mom's side very much then. so very very much you so being on time yeah. and making sure that things are done correctly and all that kind of stuff yeah so yeah that's how my dad grew up i think very dysfunctional home because just from conversations i've picked up from my dad and my uncles over the years I think very unstable um i'm not sure what he all went through in life i think maybe trauma i'm not sure what he's all experienced i, I don't really know but um he later when my dad was a teenager i think they started coming to canada to work here in ontario and then they had money but my dad was more the kind of person if you have money just you know live for the day kind of right like in mexico back before there was vehicles were allowed in the colony he would jump on the bus sometimes just to go to town for the day you know like just where's spend some money my mom was growing up, you stay home, you work, you know, you don't just um, do that kind of thing, right? And so my mom's vision, I think, in their marriage was to work hard, stay home, work hard. And my dad was a little bit more just live for the day kind of thing. And obviously probably brought a lot of baggage into their marriage, I think. And so things didn't go very wow. smooth sometimes. So home home life was a little <clears throat> rough for you even growing up? Yeah. I mean, the first years, you don't notice it as much as later on, but um so maybe I could start a little bit. So when I was seven years old, um, in 1985, so I knew there was something going on. My dad was very upset about something. I know there was somebody over at our house trying to, I guess, reason with him maybe, but he was putting on his Sunday clothes. It was in the middle of the week. You don't wear Sunday clothes in the middle of the week and he packed his clothes. And I didn't really know what was going on. I knew there was something going on, but I was outside playing with the children that were there. And then he walked off. And, he just uh, left. Yeah, he left us. And uh, so I had no clue why, right? I still don't today. I, I, but uh, he left. And so for the, for the next few months, we didn't know where he went. A few rumors came around. Somebody said that he had drowned somewhere or you didn't know. Oh, if he was, man. So we didn't know, right? So as a seven-year-old boy, um, often, you know, you cry yourself to sleep because you miss your dad, obviously. And I'm sure it was very hard for my mom because uh, now she's caring for the livestock by herself running yeah. the farm and taking care of four young children probably almost no income yeah I'm, the only income would have been from selling milk so i don't know how she how she managed uh but uh so it was turned out to be four months later i found for a seven-year-old seven-year-old boy four months is a, a very Felt long like time forever, eh? and so i remember a few times she would go to the rubio 
uh, to make a phone call to, to to call dad after I think after we found out he had been he had gone to Manitoba. That's where all his siblings lived. Like my aunts and uncles all lived in Manitoba, and and that's where he um, that's where he had gone when we found out. So I, she went on a few Sundays. She went there to uh, to call him, and I remember the one time I got actually got to hold the phone and say a few words to him. Okay, but. Um, so yeah, after so this would have been probably June, July, uh, eighty-five, and then by October, <clears throat> I think we followed. So my mom hired my aunt, uncles, which was her younger sister and her husband. They drove us to Manitoba. We followed my dad to Manitoba. Um, so I was seven years old. Um, so in the back of the pickup, me and my brothers, and we were in the back of the. I'm sure many people listening will identify with that. They yeah. all remember coming to Mexico or coming to Canada. In the back of the. Top, just a topper of it's a Ford pickup, two door pickup. <laughs> so my mom always was sitting in the front, and us kids in the back. Some blankets spread out for our comfort, I guess. And yeah. off we went. So it was a long trip, but then that pickup broke down just before we got to the Manitoba border. I guess oh, I don't know where, but so we were staying in the motel, and then I guess my dad and my uncle, my dad's brother, came with a van to pick us up. And so when I heard that they had arrived. I was so excited. I was trying to put my shoes on. I was kind of wearing some kind of boots and I was kicking the floor. I was so, so very excited. My uncle that was with us, he had to calm me down just to like re- relax because you know, it's just so loud. It's so, so that was so exciting to see that again. And then we all got in the back of the van. I think me and my brother Jake had to be in the way because they're all seated in the, uh, no room in the seats. So we sat in the, right in the back, you know, the open space in the back. And so mm-hmm. I would come up with questions for my dad just so I could say Papa again you know it felt so strange to say Papa again right so what was that greeting like did you like was there any affection at all or I I don't remember that no I just remember I guess running outside and there he was right so uh, I I don't remember exactly what that was like but just I remember trying to ask him questions so I could say Papa again and I was um, I know you have a younger sister right yeah Jake's older than you Jake's older so yeah so Jake is four years older than me and then my brother Henry's three years younger than me, That's and then right. sister is five years younger than me. So okay. five children. I think my mom had some miscarriages, some difficulties there. So I think that's why there's only four of us. So yeah, there we were in Manitoba. Um, we lived there, and so we started. My parents rented a house in Morden, Morden, yep. Manitoba, on Third Street. I still remember born, that my house. My brother was born there. Okay, uh, 2015 when we were there, I actually drove past that little house. It's still sitting there. Went to school, grade two. Uh, that's where I learned English. Okay. And um, yeah, through the winter, we walked to school. We were only like two blocks away, but uh, so my, I guess my mom went to the thrift store and whatever, and got us really heavy jackets and uh, boots. And off Those we went. winters must have been a shock. Yeah, we just never seen that before. You know, snow was almost as tall as you, right? And and uh, go to school, but that was really good. My cousin Liz, she was my age, and she very much took care, took me under her wing, uh, made sure she translated for me everywhere, and always so it was uh, to get me started there, right? So we were there all winter, and then next. So the summer, of 80, early summer of 86, uh, I remember riding my bike around and all around Morden. My dad had gotten us some bicycles. I had a 10-speed bike, bike, but it was a girl's bike, you know, with the two, oh, two yeah. bars going down. So I had to have the seat all the way down and tilt it low <laughs> <laughs> to ride around. And then the one time I learned how to ride hands-free, and I seen the pothole in front of me. Well, I should have put my hands on the wheel, to, but I figured maybe I would miss it. And sure enough, I hit it. So I really hurt myself you know between the legs and my nose so i didn't know which one to care for first because it hurt so bad so then after one of those I, things that stands <clears throat> out eh yeah so that's just something that i remember from there right and um but then that summer we we drove to um here to ontario to uh port rowan okay uh on a so my parents bought a 71 ford pickup and there we were again in the back of the camper and heading from manitoba to ontario to work here so we lived at a farmer there um picking cucumbers so me and my brother jake were sharing a row 
And then when tobacco started, so my dad would go to work in tobacco and, and I took the full road at that point. Afterwards, we picked uh, I mean, tomatoes. Dad would come and help us afterwards. And then when that season was over, we went back to Mexico. What a different life than yeah. us back now, eh? Where they oh, were just absolutely. scrambling to do whatever they could to just get, make yep. it and survive and try to find some way to, to yep. feed their family. Exactly. So I think what what my parents were wanted to do is maybe come here and make some money. And then move back to Mexico to see if they could progress over there again, right? And move on. So yeah. some months in Manitoba and then to Ontario yeah. all the summer. And then you went back to Mexico. Mexico, yeah. So we were in Mexico for three years. Um, and then in 89, uh, we actually moved to Texas for a long time. I think we were there probably eight months, I think. So at first, when we arrived in Texas, uh, we lived with my aunt and uncle for quite a while. And then my dad found a job in Ropesville, Texas, which is not far from Lubbock, so quite a bit north of uh, Seminole. Yep. Just a small little town, and I went to school there, grade four. Quite enjoyed it because um, there was only one other Mennonite family that lived in that area, so I made friends with them, and, and so the school was pretty good. Then uh, afterwards, I think that, that work didn't go too good for dad there, and then we moved back to Seminole, we got a job there. So going to school in Seminole was very rough, a lot of bullying going on, right, and uh, those kind of things, so that was a lot tougher. It wasn't like that in Lubbock. No, and Cropesville, it was much different. Yeah, okay. they didn't really know Mennonites there, right? And so they kind of tolerated you more, I guess. It hmm. was it was quite different. But uh, yeah, and I went back to Mexico, I think, for the winter. And then back in, in 1990, they went to Seminole again all year. Then then we lived close to Hobbs, New Mexico. But it was kind of between Seminole and Hobbs, but closer to Hobbs. And it was a big farm, so we lived on, on the farm. He had a lot of housing for their workers to... Um, to live in and so my dad worked there we went to school and our school was in Seminole so it was a long school bus ride but yeah a lot of like a lot of bullying like sometimes like one time I walking on a schoolyard and all of a sudden a kid threw me backwards and it hurt me so bad like my, my tailbone I got up and I was crying like I could barely move and another guy thought it was funny so he came and there Chewy went again right again. Oh, man. so things like that were a little tough because I know the one kid once asked me like why do you wear clothes like that why don't you wear the kind of clothes we wear but because you know obviously my parents couldn't it's afford all you know too right? we couldn't wear name brand clothes so I think my mom often you know bought nice clothes at uh, you know discounted prices at thrift stores or whatever and so that's just how it is I think if you if you're in the public school if you're going to send your kids to public school like don't I, I would encourage parents make them dress what they wear because it's it's you, you stick out like a sore thumb right and you're you're you get bullied a lot but that's yeah so i remember now we did a lot of hoeing too in texas so my dad was working on the farm me and my mom and our kids we would uh summertime we'd be out in the field hoeing cotton and peanuts in the hot 104 degree weather i see so that so was been on every kind of farming eh? yeah yeah so. was there was there much uh, church going for you guys as a family not not as a kid i think in mexico you don't Kids don't really go to school. Like, okay. So the Mexico kids, I mean, go, go to church. I, I remember once going to church when I was, my dad took me once, and I was probably the youngest kid in the church. And, um, man, I don't know how old I was, maybe six years old. And I sat the first, when I walked in the door, I had never been to church before. The first seat I seen, I sat down right beside the door. And there I was, right? And um, hmm. all I remember from that sermon is the preacher would every once in a while say, oh, we trode. That's the only thing I remember from the sermon. It's just like, <laughs> This was a pretty sad was affair. A sad I thought. place. <laughs> That's what I remember. Maybe it was a funeral. No, it was it was a Sunday morning okay. church service. Um, so that's kind of what I remember. But yeah, but yeah, it's not really wasn't really popular for kids to go there. And in Seminole, my parents went quite regularly to the Rhinelander um, church there. And then I guess before two hundred eighty six, we were in Manitoba. We went to a colony there quite a bit, and we were in Sunday school there. So okay. I think that was quite regular at that time that we would be there. At least I remember being in the Christmas program there, and uh, yeah. 
Yeah, sitting in and Seminole, we did, were... Did you, as a young child, have thoughts of God, really, or wasn't it really something <clears throat> that stands out? Well, I think I always knew God, like, um, always feared God, always knew I didn't meet God's standard. Like, you always looked at God as someone who was ready to strike you, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you never feel like you've measured up to God. So, yeah, there was always a fear of God somehow, but not knowing how to live for God, right? Like, right. So, by the time I was... And this happened already in 1990, like when I was 11, 12 years old, where I had this awful fear, right? Like, especially towards the evening at night, like I would fear that I'd be the last one to fall asleep. But if we had been out as a family, I would, um, often I wouldn't be able to fall asleep. I, my mom, I've spent many, my mom spent many hours on my bedside waiting, you know, just until I fall asleep because I was really? afraid. Then even later in Mexico, like 1990, 91, if we sat around in the evening around the table just to relax a little bit and do some coloring and just some family time. I would often dash off to bed before anyone else, just so that I would fall asleep before everyone else would go to bed. Mm. It's just so that I... Was it fear that something would happen in the home or fear of, <clears throat> of meeting no. God or... I think, well, just fear of, of life because obviously I've been told that it was the end of the world. Um, so everything just seems so pointless to me. Like, because oh, it, if it's the end of the world anyways, like I remember one girl in our, our, our couple got married to our second door neighbor, uh, this weeb girl, and they were building them a brand new house. They were building a new house. I'm thinking, what's the point? Like, why if it's the end of the house? world, why, why do anything yet, right? Like, so that was, that was like, I think I was maybe a depression state. I, I don't know what it was. I think there was, now I look back at it and I, I, I realized there, there was a lack in my life, a hole that needed to be filled, but I didn't know how to fill yeah. it. Yeah. And so sometimes I would even, you know, recite a prayer and, and try to relieve the, but I didn't know, I never talked to anybody about it. They just, you know, that's something you just live with. Hmm. And at the same time, sometimes too, at that time, my dad, sometimes like he wasn't an everyday drinker, but what if he did, he would leave and be sometimes be gone for four or five days. Just go on a binge. And yeah, binge drinking and you don't know where he was. So, and, and, and it seemed like I always sensed it happening, coming. So sometimes I would see him walk to the pickup and I'm thinking, I don't think he's coming home today. Like oh, is, is there was really? this urge in my spirit thinking, I don't think he's coming home today. Cause he would often do that. Like, cause my aunt and uncle had a, a store in our, in our couple. Where often men would just go to the store, you know, socialize, hang out for a little while, drink a Coca-Cola and come back home again, keep working, right? And I would think, you know, I don't think he's coming home today. And then I, all of a sudden an hour goes by, two hours, and all of a sudden it's time for evening chores and he's still not there. So we're milking his cows. Nighttime comes around, he's still not home, right? And then you start wondering, which, like, and then when he did come home, it was always late at night. Hmm. And it always scared him, like, is it tonight going to be the night when he's coming back, right? And um, so that was always something. I so when, when he was home, was there a lot of turmoil <clears throat> between him and your mom or? At times, yeah. So at times there was a lot, a lot of turmoil. And then later sometimes, um, this is obviously several years after we had followed to Manitoba. So mom would often tell him that the biggest mistake in their marriage she had made because she had followed him to Manitoba. Not always really hurt at me because to me that I, I was always so thankful for that time, yeah. right? Because I got to learn English. I got to you know, be with that again. And so, I, but I don't know what that meant. Like, you know, obviously I don't know what all happened there yeah. or whatever, right? So um, to me, it really hurt it. But yeah, when, especially after he would come home from those drinking episodes or whatever, there'd be a lot of tension because obviously mom would want to know where he was and often probably spent a lot of money. Who knows? Who knows what he did or where he went? So that was always very hard to listen to. Like often, you know, sitting in a, in a bar milking your cows and hearing some of that. And then my dad often would get very angry too and blow up, right? Oh, so, man. So that was very hard, but then it wasn't always like that. Sometimes, like, there's a lot of times too when they were really good with each other, and, and we've done fun things as a family together. You know, my dad loved sports, so I think that's kind of where I developed some of my yeah, sports. Yeah, you really like baseball. Baseball, yeah. I've known you. Oh, absolutely. I'm a huge baseball fan. And, and so we had, you know, we've done a little bit of travel, like, through the, into the mountains. My dad loved fishing. 
it was a huge fisherman. So that gave us a lot of swimming opportunities in the woods, exploring the woods and, and those kind of things. So things like that. So that wasn't wasn't just not like, all bad, all gloom and doom, right? Yeah. But but it just you know obviously their marriage was very hard. I think my mom's vision was to like I said to work hard, and my dad was more of a simple man. My mom is a very intelligent woman, and um, so so that was that was a little bit how about uh, growing up. Um, but yeah, and then by the time I was twelve years old, so I think that's when we came back to Mexico after nineteen ninety. I didn't go to school anymore. Technically, in Mexico, in the communities, I think the boys go till they're 13 and girls go till they're 12. But then that thought, well, since I had some extra schooling in, in Texas, I like, was able to convince them that I didn't want to go to school because the schoolhouses, they're, and the, the way they were set up back then, is you have one, one teacher, you know, 100 school, school kids, the boys sit on one side, the girls sit on one side. So it's a very... Hmm. They, Did you learn to read and write? Um, yeah, somewhat. Uh, like Especially in English school, I think I learned quite a bit. You know, but then you if you switch back and forth between learning German and English, it messes you up a little bit, right? Because yeah. we had the one year, and I think, man, what year was that? 88, 89? Well, maybe it was where we, my parents actually sent us to a different school, the EMMC school. In and, Mexico. Yeah, and couples in was 76, 67. So they're, and they actually learned quite a bit. It was a really good teacher, learned quite a bit there. But that was expensive, right? Because your, your DARP show, the, the community school, is paid for by your... I guess to your community property taxes yeah, or yeah. whatever, right? So, yeah. so could, they couldn't. I think that was one year, but I, le- I learned quite a bit there. But but then after I was done school at twelve years old, so I never read. Like I just I was, work was my priority, and so by the time I got married, my reading was very very poor, very very little bit of reading hmm. that I did. I could read a little bit, but but it's. I think you were saying at fifteen you came to Mexico, eh? Or back to Canada? Um, no, at fifteen. So at fifteen. That was my last summer in Mexico that we lived there. So my brother Jake actually had gone to Ontario to work okay. here. He was like 19 at the time already. So he would have been 19 and he went to Canada to see if he could make some money and, and get a little start in life. And so that was, so I was the oldest at home that year. And so a lot of hard work that year. So we, uh, so I was always the oldest, you know, make sure that they helped get the fields planted and, and harvesting. At the same time, our neighbors across the street were um, moving to another colony. So they, they were. They asked us if we would take care of their cattle and their livestock, you know, milk their cows and, and feed. That was know. almost all up to you. So that was a lot of it. Yeah, I did a lot of that. Um, so, you know, take care of stuff at home and then walk across the street and do all that stuff over there. And their, their cattle was so malnourished. And some of the cows that gave birth to calves, they, they the cows were sick. So I tried, we tried to nurse them back to health as much as possible. I spent much time trying to feed them and see if... I think I was got successful with a few of them, but most of them just died. Oh, man. So it was very hard, right? And then there was... And that summer as well, a few episodes where my dad wasn't around for some days, and it was all left to me and my mom to do. So it was a lot of work. When you sit, make milk ten cows in one setting, you get kind of tiring, right? So no kidding. So that was that was a very busy summer. And then I got very discouraged that summer, and I told my dad, I said, next year I'm going to Canada too. I said I'm done because I, 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 I know the money, the only income we had is from selling milk, and it was never enough, right? We never did have enough land to to feed our cattle year round. So every spring we're buying feed for cattle and uh it was very expensive and not very good quality and uh it seemed like it was never enough so we had a tap at, at the store and at, at my aunt and uncle's store at the you know at the fuel station so often my, you know if we needed to go plow the field my dad would say well can you go to the store and get the 200 barrels of 200 liters of fuel diesel fuel and like we enjoy doing it because we got to drive the truck right but and just you know tell the store, store clerk to we'll pay the next milk check or whatever i mean we, and i knew it wasn't going to happen 
Hmm. But then, you know, that's how we kind of... And so I got really discouraged that there was never enough to go around. It felt like the future just seemed so gloomy to me. That Like, where are we going to get in life? And so I, I got really... Canada and U.S. definitely sound like a promise land. Yeah, man, so right? I started saying I wanted. I said next. I just told that next year I'm going to Canada too. And I, even though I was so young, I guess kind of a bold thing for me to do. But and I'm guessing he must have talked to Mama quite a bit about it. And so then, the spring of '94, um, they we actually made an auction, sold everything we had, all the all our equipment, all our livestock got sold. Okay. And auctions in Mexico are a big deal. I don't know if you if you remember that, but so if there's an auction, I mean, almost everybody from all the community comes around, and there's taco vendors and there's all okay. kind of stuff so it's always a big big event but yeah so it was a whole day affair you're able to maybe make enough money to kind yeah, of yeah so i think the you know that everything brought enough my parents paid all their debt all the accounts got settled that we had and enough to travel to canada sold the land and everything i think not at first uh, i think at first they kept that because my mom inherited quite a bit when her parents died i think probably at least 20 acres and then it's also the house that we that we had the five acre property plus um i think when my parents got married they got 17 acres as well so that that was something that she got from her parents when she got married and then they could they only had to pay that as they could could right so that's what her parents did for all their 10 children as they when they got married they all got a property with some land and then they could pay it off as they could wow. right? so that's i think that's later it's all been sold but at the first but they kept that and everything else was sold and that was enough to travel to here in ontario so then your later teenage years were here in ontario yep yep so 94 um so when we first came here was april Kind of, you know how April is kind of wet and gloomy and I didn't really know anybody so it didn't feel too good like it, but we were here we parents rented a house in Springfield um, right close to where our church is now I mean on um, 52 there on Springfield Road yeah house is not there no more it's, it's gotten torn down a new one's been built there but rented a house and me and my dad and Jake got a job at the nursery oh there McConnell's McConnell's I used to be McConnell's they had a different name at that point already but yeah, that's where we worked. Three of us going to work together and and um, bringing in some money. Yeah, till I, and I worked there till '97. Dad, uh, Dad quit earlier because he got injured at work. Um, he was unloading some garbage and the wagon broke through and he was throwing a skid off and broke his wrist. So mm-hmm. he was off at work and and um, it never healed. All his uh, from that on, he his he, he always had a broken wrist. So if he went with like with his arm like this, you could always see the bone stick. It was kind of oh, creepy. And Jake, the one time he quit, uh, was a bit of a we were working together we were supposed to do some kind of packaging and it didn't work too good and the boss was really on us and jake got frustrated and threw everything down and just walked out so he was done and so i stayed there by myself yet for a while so i actually lasted till i think 97 when i finally left that place now looking back i wish i left a long time ago like minimum wage job right and yeah just, but but it's something you know you get comfortable with it do, yeah you know what you're doing and there you are and um so by 97 i would have been 18 17 18 years old but but yeah, as I grew older, like even smoking, I started smoking at a very young age, sometimes stealing cigarettes from my dad. And he never really said nothing. I'm sure he knew about it. And that's another thing. Like my mom took over the financing years ago already because dad obviously wasn't good with finances. Okay. And I think dad knew that it was the right thing to do, but it really frustrated him sometimes. So often when he had to go to mom to ask for money to buy another carton of cigarettes, he would be very upset. Like, why do you smoke so much? Why is it costing yeah. so much? Meantime, sometimes the pack went missing and it went to me, right? Like... So, so I added to his grief, kind of, right? Oh boy! It's, uh, but it's just it's when you don't know Christ, you just it, it's how it goes. And as I got older, you know, even getting drunk already in Mexico on, on the street, if you possibly could, you know, when you're 13 years old, you're out in the street with the with the youth youth boys. That's how it is, eh? Yeah. So we the one time I think I was yeah 13, 14 years old, maybe 14, yeah, about 14, 15, maybe. 
the six of us, we were, we were able to buy a bottle of whiskey from the older, older boys that had trucks to go to town. Obviously, at a huge inflated price. And we drank it straight up. We didn't have any Coke to go with it. Yikes. And got drunk and got so loud. And it was and a tragedy in our community at that time. A young little girl had gotten killed. Her parents were moving into a new house. And a furniture fell over and just broke her neck. And she died. So, and that funeral was going to be that Monday. But that Sunday night, us guys all got drunk and were, I guess, really loud on the streets everywhere. And it's even later on, the next day, mom said, why were you guys so loud last night? Like, and it's, oh, I didn't really say anything. And then that funeral, I was—I felt so awful. Like, here these people are grieving the, the loss of their little daughter. And, and I, you went and, ahead. And, and I had, we had all gotten drunk, right? So getting drunk, you think you're having fun. But, you know, the, the grief, the, 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 and it's just the, the down spiral in life when you do that kind of thing. And it just got worse as I got older, right? By the time we lived over here, time I was 17, 18, 19 years old, every weekend. Like, drinking all drinking the time. all the time. Drinking and driving. A lot of drinking, driving. Like if there was a party in Vienna or in Springfield somewhere, I was there, right? Like so, a mm. lot of that kind of that kind of thing. So that'd be about the time you met Lisa too. Yeah. So yeah, that was we met in ninety. What did I say here? So you said you worked at Hoover. You met Lisa in yep. ninety seven. Right. So I still worked at the nursery when I met Lisa, and uh, she actually worked at the one one or two a little bit. And we started dating in March, March 19th of 97. That's when we came. That's when we decided to start dating. We knew each other a little bit before that. We had been together, like, just here and there a little bit. But the one time I promised I would come over, like, to her friend's house, and I hadn't. I just went with my friends to bar hopping and, and those kind of things. Just didn't go. And next time I was, I showed up again, and then she took off with some of her friends. Somebody else showed up, and she just took off. Oh, boy. Also, I found out, well, she's, she's just gone. So I was upset about that. And then that week, actually, she called me, I think, Tuesday night or something. Hey, you still mad at me? She says. <laughs> so, then I was a little upset, and then she, well, she just said, "You did that to me too, or whatever." And then she said, "Well, why don't you come over Wednesday, come to my house?" So I thought, "Well, that's interesting." So Wednesday, by the I had a bottle of whiskey, and off I went, went to her house, and we, I guess, we talked some things through, and that's when we became a couple, officially boyfriend and girlfriend. Yeah, and at first too, like I would usually show up with a case of beer and drink that on the weekend, like. It's mm. eventually slowed down. I can't. I can hardly imagine this. I know. It, most people don't, that I know today don't know me in that, and even Lisa in that lifetime too. Well, right? most people now see you Sunday mornings doing the announcements. That you're the first one there. You're just steady right. Abe, yeah. right? So. And back then you were partier yeah. and drinker. Very much so, and um, smoking, smoking, yeah, smoking cigarettes at a very young age. So yeah, we started dating. Um, so by the time in '98. 98, so, you lost your life. Yeah, March of 98. So uh, what happened, I, at this time I was working at Canada Trailers already. You, known as P&T Walling at that time. Canada Trailers was kind of a new thing that yeah. you did on the side a little bit. And so a friend of mine that I was working with, him, he was a married guy. He wanted me to, always said, he started, I just come over on a Saturday once to see his bike and, you know, just to hang out. So there I was with him and some more friends on a Saturday afternoon drinking some beer again, like it was normal. And then I realized it was time to go to Lisa's house. So I rushed home on South Street and there was a guy crossing the street walking his dog and obviously I guess he wasn't paying attention I kind of had to swerve around him and I just stepped on it and off I went home right and just no big deal so all of a sudden I'm you know in the bathroom getting ready all of a sudden there's a knock at the door and um it was that same guy now he comes to the door and I uh, came to the door and he says is that your car I said yep and then he obviously oh, smelt my breath and he's you've been drinking he, yeah and I found he's an off-duty off armor police oh, officer boy. so he had followed me home so he used my parents' phone to call the call it in so the police chief and a female officer came and picked me up and took me to, took me to the station. 
And then obviously I had to do the whole thing there, walk the line and sit in that little cell for a couple hours. I think it felt like a couple hours anyways and uh, failed the breathalyzer test. So lost my license immediately for 90 days. Um, I tell you, that's such an embarrassing moment when your mother has to drive you to work in the morning. You're 19 years old in your own car and you can't can't drive and come and pick you up afterwards. So that happened for was a it, Was it a pretty big eye opener for you then too? It, it was. It, it, I think it it realized that this is, you, I can't keep going like this, right? Like you, you can't, this is, you're going in, in the wrong path. And um, so that was the 90 days and then pending whether you lose them for another year at court yet, right? So if you, you know, and so then I talked to my uncles and stuff and they thought I should fight it. So that's and I end up hiring a lawyer and I keep bringing him money to try to build up the, so just the last week there, I looked up, still have my records at home, the, the, all the, all the, all my receipts. And so it cost me just under $3,000 to fight it. But, um, but yeah, so my mom took me to work until I found me a different ride. And then until I had my license back. So once I got my license back, then I started doing a quite a bit of driving at PNT Wilding for like, I did the run, run the errands to town and deliveries and pickups and stuff. So that, I think that helped me later in my trial. So when my trial was just under a year later in early March, March 6th of, um, 99 that's when my trial was finally and i was already so sick of it i was like you know i should have just said plea guilty and then you know just i was so tired of this already because now i was thinking that what if i lose the case now and then i lose them for another year right yeah but then the, the judge heard my trial and obviously the lawyers kind of coach you what to say and whatever so you know some things aren't exactly truthful but hmm. so you the, do whatever it takes you to take, get your license takes, back but they, so the judge yeah he heard my trial and then he said well come back tuesday and i'll have my decision so then I had to live over that weekend yet without a decision. Tuesday, back in the courtroom, and then he came back out and, and he, um, re, you know, he explained his, uh, his explanation and found me not guilty, um, which I was really, really excited about. And, he, and one reason was, too, that I was starting to do a lot of driving at work. And I think because of the situation, I had been at home already and, and those kind of things. Yeah. A lot so, of times they can see that you need this to progress in your life. <laughs> they could easily ruin your life or they can kind of yeah. help you. And, and if I, they can see that you're on a good path now... They let they're pretty lenient. I think he probably figured give me a chance, yeah. right? And then, and I feel I feel so thankful for that because had he convicted me, I would have a criminal record. And now, like I've been a fast card holder since it came out after nine eleven, I wouldn't be able to do that. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have and I would have problems crossing the border because yep. of a criminal record, right? So it's been a huge huge relief for me that that he found me not guilty. I mean, the Elmer police didn't like it. They walked out as soon as the, the verdict was uh, announced, and I was me and my lawyer were really excited, but. Um, so I'm very thankful for that time uh, that I was, I feel like I caught a huge break and that, that was a huge eye opener to stop doing that kind of thing as much. And then uh, that year we got baptized, I think May 23rd in Old Colony, we were um, planning planning to get married. Planning to get married. So that was, so in order to do that, we had to get baptized and, you know, pretty much a repentance baptism, I guess. Yeah. To, again, obviously I took it serious. I wanted to make sure... I, you know, you confess to people who you thought you had hurt and those kind of things, right? But no, no thought of Christ, no view of who He is and what He's done, that kind of thing, right? So yeah, you know that Jesus died for your sins, but then you you feel like you have to do your part, right? So yeah. then you clean up, try to clean up your life to measure that up, right? And so, but could you know that you had salvation? No, it's something only no, God knows. No confidence. Yeah. No confidence in salvation. And um, but yeah, so then uh, June twenty seventh was our big wedding day. Um, just simple after church service um i think there was five or six of us standing in a row there was five or six of you getting married at the same time same time okay we uh actually pete and tina newfield i think were right behind us so we oh, actually got wow. married to see we shared the same anniversary so it's something we have in common with them as well 99 that's uh three years before us 
Okay, you got married in 2002. 2002. Very interesting. Yeah, so we uh, got married, and then uh, Lisa worked on the farm, a tobacco farm. So obviously, always working Sundays, and I and I didn't like it because it was so lonely for me in the summertime, sitting at home all day on Sunday by myself. So we made an agreement that if I quit smoking, she would quit working Sundays. And so, the one day she came home from grocery shopping, had bought me those patches. Uh, it was so my last day of ever touching a cigarette in my mouth. It was um, October thirty first of uh, nineteen ninety nine. Okay. So I used just after you got married. Yep. Yeah, shortly after you got married. So I, I used the patch for three weeks, and it, I think that feeds you nicotine, but it's not you know, the, 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 the habit. The habit of you doing it. So it was. So I didn't tell anybody at work. It took three, four days before they caught on that I wasn't coming outside after lunch anymore to share a cigarette with everybody else. They wanted to sit there, whatever, to socialize. So then all of a sudden the guys come right close to you and, and, and you all try, try to, to test you. And the thing is your senses are so high. Like if somebody, because we could smoke during working hours, if somebody at the edge of the shop lit up, I could smell it immediately. Like driving down the road, you, everywhere you look, the people are smoking and it because you, you're so, oh, your yeah. senses are so high. So, but I'm so thankful that after three weeks, I took the patches off. It was a six week program. And from there, I've never smoked. And I remember counting. I think I was up to 60-some days, maybe 67 days, I think. Every day, man, I wish it was six, you know, one day more. I wish every day I counted. And all of a sudden, one day, I'm, I'm thinking, what day am I at? And I, all of a sudden, I realized I forgot the day I was on. And, okay. and then I, at that point, I realized I had victory. And that I'm was, done. That was very good. But a little bit before that, so that same year we got married. So we were newlyweds. I worked at Canada Trailers. And a steel truck showed up, Crawford Metal, which all of a sudden, so I jumped on the forklift, got out there to unload them. Cigarette thing out of my mouth, right? And uh, it was a new driver. And he uh, comes up to me with, his, with the paperwork and just looks at me and says, where would you be five minutes after you died? Just just like that. Okay. It shocked me. Like, I was not expecting that. Like, and I couldn't really answer that question, right? And then I thought, man, if I hadn't, at least didn't have a cigarette in my mouth, I would have been... <laughs> I would have looked like I was closer. Appeared a little bit, <laughs> a little bit better, right? But it, it shocked me. And then I found out you know which group he was a part of he was part of that vienna group that had left the church you know a few years before oh, okay. that you know there was a big opera back then with all that and a very zealous young group and so i kind of accused him of not having you know official preachers and all that kind of thing right trying to justify uh you know that he was wrong and i was right kind of yeah. thing later i learned from willie martin's that it was jake dreger who had been the driver oh, okay. i never knew who it was but uh but that it bothered me for a few days even though I bragged to my co-workers of my comebacks and, and whatever. I did the same kind of thing, for sure. But the thing is, in, in my heart, it bothered me. Like, why? I, I've done everything I should have done. I, I, I'm newly married. I just got back to this year. Why can't I have Stop confidence? drinking. Oh, you hadn't stopped smoking yet. No, I hadn't stopped smoking. Even drinking, too. We, we drank quite a bit again. Oh, right okay. after we were married. Even right right before married already. We were getting our house ready. We were going to move into and got some beer out and stuff. So it nothing really changed in my heart, right? Just, you, you were right... And the same thing that I used to hate for my dad so much. I hated my dad so much when he had drank. I've, he was so annoying to me. Like, it just, it, and I was following that same path. I, I could see myself heading us on that same road, right? Wow. The thing that you hated so much, all of a sudden you're in that same trap. And so, yeah, that was, you were so still. To, to think about death and eternity and where you would be five minutes after you die, that can Yeah, be you know, obviously I knew my upsetting. body would be laying on the ground, but I knew he was talking about my soul, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that really, really pricked my heart, but I kind of, you know, brushed it off and, move on in life but then I think um, the year after my brother Jake was already a Sunday school teacher at Old Colony and um, I guess they were looking for more and Peter Friesen he was the Sunday school principal all of a sudden he calls me up and um, asked if I wanted to be a Sunday school teacher so I did it so at that point we very, very much quit drinking I think we you know because we we wanted to go to church and be more committed um, 
start. You have to worry about your reputation a bit now because yeah, and Carrie, Carrie was born, and so now you know we, the odd time we would still I would still drink a little bit, but try you know, try to clean it up as much as possible. And right? this is I often think about the way the Mennonites and the Amish they th- they kind of think like let the Amish will say let them sow their wild oats mm-hmm. during their teenage years, then they'll get married, then they'll settle down, they'll slowly become just a good solid church citizen, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what you had become now. You know, you're doing your duty, you're serving yep. the Sunday school, you're not drinking as much. <laughs> You know, things better now. Right? Um, yeah, I stop mean, smoking. Some secret sin still, but you know, you, you, on the outside it looks good, right? Exactly. Like, I remember sometimes walking to my Sunday school class, and yeah, because I was in the portable, and still some people sitting in the, in the car smoking a cigarette before they walk into the church. And I think, man, you know, you kind of felt like I was better than them yep. because I don't, I didn't smoke anymore, right? So this this self righteousness kind of thing kicking in, and yet at the at the core, of the, I was a wicked person, like yeah. I wasn't born again. Um, but yeah, when, when Carrie was born, and it, it gets you really thinking, right? That what do you want for your future, for your children? And then realizing that you need it more. Um, so that was, that was, and then 2001 as well, I, I got my license, started driving truck. So I was driving team, left home for a Sunday night, got home late Friday night. And with a, oh, we had boy. a 10-month-old baby at home. And that was really, really hard. I, I always thought driving truck would be my dream job, but that was the hardest thing I think I've ever done getting started and I knew I needed to get started somewhere to get kid experience and and I wanted to eventually be able to make enough money to where we could buy a home that was our vision right to buy be able to buy our own home and and I was hoping that, that my wife wouldn't always have to work where if we would have children that she could be at home and that was kind of the motivation for that so that was for a little while I had a, my one co-driver after three weeks he quit and I was a brand new driver that hired another guy and he actually ditched us in Ohio the one night he oh, um, ran off the highway and Pretty much flipped the truck all the way sideways. Uh, I was in the bunk. I just all of a sudden heard the chaos going on. All of a sudden, I came to a standstill. And uh, yeah, so I climbed out the window. And as I peeked in my head out, the state trooper was already sitting there waiting to see if there was any people coming out. I guess he had been right close by watching traffic. And somebody on CB had alerted him that there was a truck crash. So he was already there. Man. How so long that, did you do that long distance driving? So it wasn't... Well, it was. I was gone all week. That was only for maybe three months I, I forget because after that the company didn't really want to keep me on because I think their insurance pro- were probably on them for having new drivers by themselves out there so that that pretty much came to an end they kind of got let, let me go um unvolunteer I think you know they didn't want to say that you're fired or whatever even though it wasn't my fault but you kind of just let me go that company didn't want to they probably weren't allowed to insure me anymore I'm thinking so that wasn't too long but it, long enough to be really worried some yeah. for me right it just was really miserable being in a small truck with someone else um, but yeah, that then I worked for Evans for a little bit. Uh, you have Evans, Evans, I think. That's Kill sense Kill sense Abe, yeah. yeah, I worked them for a little while. Driving truck too. Driving truck. So I was from Chatham to uh, St. Louis, back and forth, and then that came to an end shortly too because of um, I'm not sure if he had financial difficulties or something. So he was making changes in his life too or something. So then I uh, started working for Henry Margaret Froze, um, doing a slip seat. No, I did the Laredo, Texas runs. So I was team driving with John Clausen for a while, and then later Jake Ants for a little bit. Yeah, so I did that for at least six months, and then um, they hired some other guys for that run and had a different truck with a shorter run from South Haven, Michigan to Oshawa. So I would do the South Haven end in one day, one week, which was the middle of the night drive in the three AM pickup. And then the one week you did uh, slip seating to Oshawa, right? So, oh yeah. So about that time we had bought our house in Elmer, our first home. We were just young family getting started. Um, yeah, so we. Uh, this kind of this kind of where we finally met the right, whole so Redicop church split. And I, I've been amazed how many times. Like I talked to Isaac Dyke, I talked to John Dyke, I talked to 
uh, my brother Joe and a bunch of others on the podcast where a lot of our start in the faith, where we really started seeing what Christ had done, was somehow through that whole Redicop mm-hmm. church split. Not necessarily because of his teaching or preaching, but because of the new environment, the new dynamic, and we were open to listening mm-hmm. to messages from outside and all that kind of stuff. So that's when we met. Mm-hmm. Remember Carrie being just a little tiny yeah, girl? Right. Hallie was a baby. I think when that started, Alex was just born. I think yeah, it was Hallie and Alex are the same age. Yeah, exactly. So they were literally just newborn babies. And uh, so when that happened, so what I was going to say about this when I was doing this night run to oh, Grand sorry. Rabbits, so that's when I started listening to Christian radio. Like uh, there was a, a station in Grand Rabbits, 3 a.m. So th- uh, they always had some, you know, David Jeremiah, th- Turning Point came out at 3 a.m. And then I think R.C. Scroll, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Yeah. He's more of a... Um, He's a Calvinist, but yeah, but it's got a little good bit, stuff, yeah. You know, the, and so I started to hear things, and I think I started to realize that there's more than I, than I'm getting, right? Like yeah. there was now looking back, I think there was a hunger that I that I wasn't get, that wasn't being met. I, I knew there was more, but I, like at the time, I didn't know what the answer was. But so I, you know, you need to listen to something to keep awake, and uh, so I would listen to those things, which was uh, I started to learn a little bit, and then when Mr. Redicup stepped down. That was obviously a very big deal in the yeah. old colony, uh, but I was really excited about it. I was very supportive, super excited about it. So the first time that we met at the hall there in, in Luton, uh, we were there. And then from there, uh, we were with the whole thing. Uh, I, think, I think it became treasure shortly after. And yep. so we were part of that, the whole thing, the whole, you know, even renting the hall, we did we, we, uh, we did all the supplies for the Pollock. So every, and by that time I had bought my own truck already in January of 2004, I bought my first truck, put it on with Wolverine Freight System. And there too, I was doing a night run every night, a thousand kilometers through the night, five nights a week. So then Sunday afternoon, we would, uh, as soon as lunch was over, start cleaning up, bring everything home, try to sleep an hour or two, and then go to work. I so see. It was very busy. Those were exciting days back then. Everybody yeah, was excited much. about the gospel or trying to figure out what the Bible is all about. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. shortly after a youth group got started with Henry Harder, I think. Trying to, he Henry was, and I started that. Yeah, yeah. Leading and Henry sharing devotions and and I very much appreciated that because listening into that, and they invited us to that too to play sports and 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 uh, a lot of devotions. Like there was John Maria Wall. I think we're part of that too. So a lot of people that we got together with. We went to their house sometimes. I think it was maybe prayer meetings. Even our house was a lot Frank of Frank and Maria. Yeah, Frank and Maria. Who did I you say? said John Maria. So Frank and yeah, Maria. Frank yeah, Frank and Maria. Well, she was really excited back then too. And, <coughs> yeah. and Henry, you know, he knew the gospel for a while already. He had been set free from mm-hmm. smoking through the gospel. And okay. he yeah. was always really excited about that. Yeah, so it was very, very fun. I we, we were re- So we started to really grow. I think uh, slowly getting more knowledge in Christ. And um, yeah, so then eventually... Uh, so. But I think, I'm not sure at what point I got actually got born again, because it, it took me a process. So when you're so deeply ingrained about your works, it takes a long time, especially a slow learner like myself, like a hard-headed person. Yeah. It takes forever to learn something. And then you're hearing like a flood of messages, whether it's David Jeremiah mm-hmm. or all of a sudden Denny Keniston and Mo Stoltzfus and these guys from Charity, and then hearing Mr. Redekop and then all the talk, Henry Wee, Henry Harder and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Very, so a lot of, yeah, it gets very confusing. But yeah, that's, speaking of uh, Denny Keniston, also Henry Harder actually, I think my wife bought me a uh, MP3 player for my truck for my, I think it was Father's Day or something. Yeah. So Henry Henry Harder actually burnt me a disc, 70 hours worth of messages. So a lot of Denny <laughs> Kennison, like, and there's, there's Moe's like fire brimstone kind of preacher from yeah. the Amish perspective. And Denny, you know how excited he can get. So all these fiery messages. And it, now sometimes I thought, man, if I could just maybe be part of one of those meetings once. And they you know, he sometimes talked about the, you know, the altar calls and how they finally prayed somebody through to God. And I thought, that's what I need. That's what I need. Yeah. You know? 
and then often I would get to the truck stop. But at that point, I was doing a dedicated run from Concord to uh, Chicago, Fort Chicago. So I was out one night and then home one night. And then often on my way out to Chicago, I would listen to all this stuff and I'd get in my bunk and pray and you know accept Jesus in my heart and all these things and for, ask for forgiveness. Yeah. That's okay. Now I'm born again. Now I'm now I'm saved. Just the next couple of days, all of a sudden, what if I'm not saved? And it just my heart started pounding. And it's like, man, it was such a struggle, you know, man, like oh, man. going on and on, but try really trying to figure out what that all means. And and uh, also sometimes I just thought maybe maybe God just doesn't want me. Like maybe maybe I just I don't know. You know, it's just, you get to those kind of thoughts sometimes, right? Like, but then I thought, you know, and when you felt like giving up, you thought. But then I th- thought about my wife and children. I thought, no, I can't. I can't give up. Right. I, I got to press forward. We got to keep doing this. And then one day we, were, uh, we had company over on a Sunday, and I think it was Abe and Nancy there, and someone else I forget who. But somebody had a MP3 disc, seven hours or seven messages, I think, by Michael Pearl. It was the title was called "Sin No More." Oh yeah. And the title, like when I seen that, it, it, it pricked my eyes. Like that's what I need. I need to find out how to, because I was hoping to find get to this place where I felt spiritual, and tried so hard because I remember the one time I was in Concord loading up. And I had to back in the dock on a jackknife position. So it's a little bit tricky to do because there was there was a fence there and the trucks had to go past there. So your truck had to be in a 90, you know, face in a 90 degree position. And I was backing in and I hit a dumpster and I ripped my my mud flap off. And I got out and I, I cursed. And really maybe I thought, how like if I'm a Christian, how in my world can I do this? Okay. Like, so really, you know what I mean? Like you just felt so condemned right away. And and um so then when I seen this message, when I seen this title, Sin No More, yep. and I thought, this is what I need. Like, because why am I still so carnally minded, right? And so I um, went to Concord Monday morning on my way out. I was out of Toronto and I popped this CD in. My, and he spoke like no other preacher before. <laughs> so this guy starts talking and it's like, man, he doesn't sound like a preacher. Yeah. He sounds like a hillbilly. Like, but the guy, but I respected the guy who gave this to me. Like, he said it was this was good stuff. And I started to listen. And all of a sudden, things started to resonate in my heart, what he was saying. And I, it's been a long time now since I listened to it. But he started talking about when you get born again, that physically nothing changes. You're still the same. Your, your physical body is still the exact same, yeah. capable of the exact same thing as it was before. The only thing that changed is you were walking north, now you're walking south, which vice versa, whatever, right? Like, also that dawned on me, it's, it doesn't matter how I feel. The reality of Jesus Christ dying for me, Amen. It, it, did, it didn't matter. And, and um, so then, you know, those verses that you just thinking that Jesus Christ was made sin for me, that I could be made righteous. Amen. So I just accepted by faith that the work of Jesus Christ has been finished for me. I'm righteous because He's righteous. That's right. It's not my righteousness. So if God had to judge me according to to my works, then I'd be lost forever. But so that's that's changed my life. Uh, I know at that point it, it got clear to me that it didn't matter how I felt about it. It's the reality that I know to be true, and it changed my life. And that's that's kind of what that's what I'm still resting in today. Wow. That. I knew that there was some connection there because at the same time I was listening to Sin No More right around that same time and it I, I was already saved for a year or two maybe but it totally changed my perspective mm-hmm. like I finally saw clearly that it wasn't about me it was all about Jesus <coughs> nothing to do with my work right so did I get saved at this point did, they, but I think at least my answers were clear right yeah. so I often think of the words that Jesus said who, who has an ear to hear will hear and I think that simply means if, if you want to know Christ, he will he will reveal himself to you, right? Yeah. You, and and that's that's really changed my mind, right? So and then you think of Romans, you know, three twenty three or whatever. By grace you are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Because if, if you could earn your salvation by your own works, you could boast about it, right? And um, um, yeah. Any, any more questions on that? 
No, I mean, I th that was very clear, nice little gospel presentation. Hey, Everly, go see Ezra, okay? We're almost done. <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh, that was that, and that's been our motivation. Um, well, I know, like, um, when we were first born again like that, we really wanted to raise our kids well. Mm -hmm. And it was we had almost no good examples showing us how to do it. And we were hoping that what we were doing was the right thing. And, you know, we were studious, we were faithful, mm -hmm. we were disciplining our kids from very young on. We were trying to make sure that they were, you know, walking right. And you never know, is it going to pay off or isn't it going to pay off? Now I often look at you and I, you know, I look at Carrie. She's mature, stable, working hard, mm -hmm. you know, in a fairly serious relationship now. Things are <laughs> going well for her. And I look at Alex, he's hardworking, he's mature, he's in shape. He saves his money. He buys things cash. You know, Phillips, you know, into the workforce mm -hmm. doing a good job. We don't know how they'll all turn out yet. Right, right. But man, process. oh man, where could things have been? Eh? I, I, I look at it and I, I feel so blessed. I, I, I don't, I, I just incredibly blessed. I, I don't know, you know. How, how could this have feel, happened? It feels so <laughs> undeserving, right? But it's, you know, our, it's something that we took very, very, very serious. Like you said, raising our children, it became, you know, we learned about homeschooling then because Carrie, the first year, we actually sent her to uh, junior kindergarten. And immediately you, you think that you're sending a small child, um, innocent, but it, her attitude started changing. Like she was getting more rebellious, more, more resistant. Mm -hmm. just, and so we learned about homeschooling and we took her out of school. And um, I remember that, like, the first year Lisa was t teaching her, also she started to read. And Lisa said, like, I, I taught her how to read. She, she knows how to read. And, well, you know where that's gone. She's, she's never stopped she reading. She never her stopped nose, reading. Her nose is in the book whenever possible. <laughs> yeah. and, and she's, uh, well, a few years ago, she actually wrote her own book. Yeah, and, printed uh, it and everything. Printed it. So, uh, yeah, it's we're, we're super blessed. Um, so that's been our focus to try to raise our children in a, in a stable home. And my wife, too, she's a naturally a, a optimistic person, whereas I'm more of a pessimist. So often when I feel like... You know, I feel stuck and don't see if it, and I see, and she will give her perspective. It's like, oh yeah, there is a way, you know. So it really helps me out to be more optimistic about life. She's a very optimistic person, and she makes the home fun. She's um, she's a very behind the scenes kind of woman. Much, like she never wants to be much, out front and no, center. Put her, you know, put her behind the scenes, and that's where she'll serve. And taking notes of everything, she's got notes of everything. Like if. Yeah. Listen to a sermon on Sunday morning. She has a whole page written down, all the scripture verses and the notes and things. Like, I can't do that. I, she she it, could write a history book eventually about <laughs> the church at Springfield. Yeah, she has. Right now, the folder is already pretty thick of all the information that she's collected over the years. And she does that everywhere. Like at home, if I'm looking for a note sometimes, I have to dig 10, 5, like everything is written on. It's wow. just I always have to dig down. Everything is written down and everywhere from everything. She just keeps track of everything, and, and it's, it, there's there's just no denying the grace of God. Grace amen. being God's unmerited mm -hmm. favor. Like you look at your history, the way you were raised, the way your dad was, the way your mom and dad couldn't get along, him leaving, all that kind of stuff, and then for you guys to have a stable, mm -hmm. happy, happy home, right? Like we look at your marriage and we see you guys just you're still flirting and holding mm -hmm. hands and enjoying each other's company. Twenty five years into marriage now, right? That's Almost. Right. Well, yeah, we're we're getting there. Yeah, so. It's, it's incredible what God has done. Well, I mean, it's, it's you know, and I see the, the the work that God has done on Lisa's heart as well. Like, I mean, she grew up; her dad was an alcoholic as well, and um, very little going to church growing up. I think she's been to church a very few times. Wow. And um, so, so she's, but she's um, maturing. She loves the she loves to study the word. She studies the word all the time. She loves learning. She's um, just incredible. And then, it's very the way she was, always really admired her how 
how she nurtured her children when they were small, like how she cared for them and, and how she dedicated her life to them. And it's been so, it's been so much beautiful to watch, right? And then now the children growing up and they've been homeschooled under her guidance. She's home more than I am, obviously, because I'm out at work. And, um, you know, just and then to spend time with them. And, and so, yeah. yeah, I think you were going to mention this topic yesterday. You mentioned that to me. So I talked to my wife. I said, what, what are the few things that I could... Um, Share, like, like, what are the keys to a successful so, family? Because I know there's so many young families in our, in our church now. They're, they're, look, they're looking to our older families. Like, how do you guys do this? How, how are you guys? And I think that's what they're, they're attracted to this. Did they want a stable, functioning home? And I think there's a lot of people who are very hungry for that. And so now, we, obviously, we're not out of the woods yet. It's still an everyday process, right? Yeah. Every day is a new challenge. Every day is a new opportunity to raise our children, to teach them. And, and, and so if that's a blessing to someone younger coming by us, Praise the Lord. I, you know, that's what I would want to see for them and, and their families as well. So, so mm-hmm. three things, I, I mean, Lisa talked about last night and, and I said, what's, what's a few things I should share with Dan on, on this podcast? And he said, she said, well, make them, uh, so make them your friends, teach them to serve. So our children, in a sense, now that they're so much older, like they're not just my, but they're also my friends. Like yeah. we, we enjoy hanging out together. We, we enjoy being together as a family. Uh, I love, I love it when I can get home on time for supper. It doesn't always work for me. But I love the sitting around a table when everybody gets home from work. It's always a lively discussion and a, and a fun time, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's uh, and, and just to see every child, their own character, their own way of viewing the world. It's it's just so beautiful. Another top thought we had was uh, keep the hearts of your children. If you if you don't, you won't have access to theirs. Exactly. So I think if you have the heart of your children, you can admonish them. You can you can. Give them advice, even if sometimes if they don't like it, but they will they will listen to it because because you have their heart, right? So, and I think if they know that you have their best interest at heart, and each child is very very different. Like if I think of Alex, he he, he will come to me for advice sometimes about his future dreams and, and and decisions that he wants to make, and he'll seek my advice on it. What do you think about this, Dad? Whereas Philip is way more independent. He, he's more the kind of guy that. You know, I got this. I don't need help. I'll figure it out. Right? I'll figure it out. Hmm. So he's going to go through some hard times sometimes because he's going to he's going to have trial and error. So I have to figure out a way to how do I indirectly sometimes give him advice with him, even him really realizing that I'm trying to give him advice that when that time when he when he faces that time that he'll make Very good. good decisions, right? So you so you have to figure out each way of each child how to how to try to approach them, right? Too, too many parents when we were young, I think, saw just discipline. They really like uh, some people, a certain group that we know of where they were very, very strict with their kids Mm -hmm. and they had obedient, you know, little soldiers that did what were commanded, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but they didn't really seem to have the kids' hearts. And I think that's really key. Like you need to do both, but if you don't have their hearts, discipline is just going to drive them away. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if I think about it now, the older children, I've spanked more than the younger children because I think the younger, when the younger children come along, they see how the older children react to the parents' uh, demands or whatever. And they, and they kind of almost naturally follow. They fall in line. But that says... Okay, then, then we do, right? So then it, and it becomes much easier, yeah. right? So then, yeah, you have to have their hearts for that. For sure. Uh, another one was spend lots of time with them. Not just working, but fun times. Yeah. So, yeah, obviously, I, I, work ethic is very, very important to me. Obviously, I, I, I love working hard. And so, I, you know, to teach our children to work hard, is, I think it's very important to me. But also to have fun times. So I, we've had, you know, where we've gone on vacation before. You create so many good memories when you do that. Like it's expensive, I get it. And then I would encourage people, young families, if you can, maybe set up a budget, save some money, go on vacation sometimes, spend time at the cottage for a week or, or whatever, mm-hmm. right? So, 
Well, right. you did. You worked alongside your boys quite a bit on Saturdays and stuff yeah, too, right? Yeah. So right now we still have quite a bit of wood to cut. We did some last Saturday. I think we'll do some today this afternoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's always a lot of fun. I have some uh, machinery in the shop, the uh, woodworking tools. Yeah. Which don't get used as much now that the boys are working. Um, so now we don't. We don't but do those that. skills probably help them somewhat oh, yeah, at for work sure. too. So that was uh, where we did the fun times. Okay. Um, another thought we had is talk to them as individuals. They are not an extension of you. They are their own person with their own thoughts and ideas. Oh, wow. Very, I think that's that's very key, right? Talk to them as they're, they're, they are their own they individuals. They are completely their own person. Eh? And um, so, so you have to approach them that way, right? And let them express their own thoughts and ideas. I, I don't want to create robots. I want them to be able to where they think for themselves, right? Mm. So... That's the thought we have. Do you have them thinking differently than you many times then, or? I think so. I think there's there's things that they, they see that maybe like uh, that they would see different. Like, so let's say when it comes to maybe even watching movies or whatever. Like some of the movies they like, I don't like them, right? Like some of the cartoon stuff or whatever. Like some of the dragon movies and stuff. I, I hate that kind of stuff. It's yeah. Just, but and they like it. It's like how can you? I, yeah. I don't get it, right? But some Lord of, the, Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings, stuff. that kind of stuff. Because yeah. we actually, I had to watch them. So Carrie is so. I can't them. stand that stuff. So <laughs> I wasted what six hours of my life. <laughs> then every time, so you know, we would watch an hour, and it was time to go to sleep or whatever. And the next time, okay, what was happening? I don't, I don't get what's I don't who, know what's, what's what? happening. Why is that guy got so short, short feet? Like I don't get it. Like and then everybody's so di- like, but they're fascinated with this stuff, and it's like I don't get it. Yeah, you know, even Carrie's book that she's into. Um, what do you call it? Um, fiction, fiction writing. Yeah. So she wrote this book and I tried to read it. And it's like, man, I, I can't get into this. So I told her, okay, Carrie, why don't you record reading it? And send, so she, she did, a, I think, through half the book now, where she would read a couple chapters and send them to me on, on WhatsApp. And I could audio listen to them and then her voice reading it, her emotion and her. So it was really good. I appreciate that. Like it's, but it's just not my style. It's not your style. Not my now. style at all. Yeah. But now she's given up. She's getting too busy with boyfriend and all. So she hasn't sent me in. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she'll listen to this. <laughs> Right. And another thought we would have for for your audience, uh, Dan, if hopefully that, if this would could help them, is uh, teach them God's word, uh, be an example to them that they are fully convinced that it is the truth. Yeah, I that's that's key. That, it, obviously, the gospel that you're actually living your life that based you live on it. that you live your life that they can see that they have an example. That don't don't live a way that that you're a hypocrite, right? Yeah. And uh, I think that's that's very important that the children can see that your faith is real. I think that's another thing that often happens in religious homes is do this, but don't do what I do, right? Kind of thing. Yeah. You know? So like my dad used to say, he was a full-time smoker, but my boys, I don't want you to smoke. Yeah. Well, guess what happened? All of, all three of us smoked at one point in time. I think we've all quit now, but <laughs> so yeah. something that can, that can happen. More is caught than taught, right? Exactly. Parents will Parents will do things and think that they can teach their kids yeah. to do differently. Another one, and this is a very hard one for me, um, allow them to make mistakes. I'm a perfectionist, so when I see, I always want to correct, and I'm very quick to correct. Yeah. But my wife is more lenient that way. So you, they allow them to make mistakes because that's how you learn. And that's how I learn in life too. Because the thing is, you make a mistake and you, you know what not to do anymore, right? So that's what she says, allow them to make mistakes. Interesting. So that, and like I said, that's more harder for me because of, because of the um, perfectionist that I am. Um, Another one, and then this is the last one I have here, is uh, admit when you are wrong and apologize. As a parent, admit to your kids that you were wrong. So, and, I, and I've often had to do that where sometimes I've overreacted. I acted on impulse and I've overcorrected. 
and I'll realize, all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, I, I've done wrong, and I've gone back, you know, apologize to them, sorry, you know, and children are so forgiving. Yeah. You, you apologize to them, they'll come and they'll hug it's you. It's amazing how many parents won't do that because it's too humbling. They're like, no, I'm not going to do that. Because at the beginning, my Lisa once read a, a um, an Amish book about child training, and they taught, do never apologize to each other. Even if you've wronged your children, and then they gave some examples, but do not apologize to them, wow. they said. And so it's like, wow, that's that's not right. If, no. you know, if you if you apologize, if they if you done wrong, they will forgive you, and you will be far better off in the long run. I think. Right so on. yeah, and that's one thing we you know as when we started out, we re- we read to train up a child. Uh, we've listened to um, like Woody Boffman. I've read some of his books. Yeah, we heard him speak in Hamilton, and just try to gather information and from people around us that we draw energy and information from, how to raise our children, how to you know, you know, and the solid relationship that they have at church with the with the other children that they, that they've grown up with. And that's how we, that's how kind of how we roll. Right that's on. our, um, that's uh, any other questions on, on that topic? No, I think that covers uh, quite a lot. There's a lot there that people could definitely benefit from. Yeah. Okay. I was just want to mention like, yeah, so my dad passed away in 2019 and uh, so he had cancer. We found out um, July, well, in September. So my parents actually went to Manitoba for a couple months. They were there with my brother, Jake, when he was dealing with his chemo and when they came back, Literally a month after that, I think he was diagnosed oh, with yeah. stage four lung cancer. And then um, by December, he was dead. I think at the end of November there, about a few days before he passed away, I think maybe a week, me and my sister actually took him to his uh, doctor's appointment. He told us to take him in and they admitted him to the hospital. And that's where he, in hospice care, he died. And, uh, but the last days that he was still alive, he became very, very active, um, very dangerous. I think you're driving his golf go-kart and his, uh, try to drive the car and, Cut branches off a tree, and I just, I just thought he was going to get himself killed. He had a broken something yeah, before he actually. That. But uh, it was always a very hard time. But uh, just the thought of. So we talk, I talked a little bit in the beginning how my dad had, obviously, made, you know, he's lived a pretty rough life, and but I'm I'm excited about the, the way it ended though. Um, had some time reading scripture to him in a, in a hospital bed. The one day he wasn't already doing anything, but then I read some, you know, Romans three twenty three, and someone just explained to him. How we're set free through Christ, and he would just always kind of pick his finger up. Really, no, no other reaction. And then actually, that evening he became, uh, he woke up again, where he actually uh, sat up a little bit, yeah, and stuff. But then, yeah, and then I spent the last night of his life with him. Uh, so it was my mom's birthday on December sixth. We actually had a little bit of a party in his room yet there. And then when everybody left, I stayed the night, spent the night on the couch, and and then. But the next day, I went home, had a little nap, and then they called us and said, to, "I think my brother Scott called to come in." And so by the time we got there, he had already passed. But then John Susan had been there and with my mom. And in the middle of John like praying, he passed away. Wow. So I'm really excited about that. Really excited about my mom. She's she thinks she's really growing in the Lord too, right? She's a super intelligent woman. Like if you... if you uh, Memory like anything, eh? If you were to interview her, she could give you a play-by-play with her all her life. She'd probably sit here for hours and hours and hours. I don't know how long it would take her, probably a whole week. I'm not sure. But she's an incredibly talented woman, very... Um, remembers everything like often sometimes when she talks about my childhood she'll remember all the details and I was like mm-hmm. I wouldn't I know I just don't know so she's very much the genealogies um, the one time she figured out she told me I was my dad's fifth cousin I said mom to stop I said he's just my dad he's not he's not my fifth cousin you know so she's so I'm very proud of my mom I just want to put that out there um, yeah. you know I, I don't I, I know they didn't want these hard times for us either growing up but it led to this it know? did so I, awesome. I don't think of those times much. I think of think of now and the future and 
see what it all brings. I'm just really excited to uh, see my children grow up and hope to one day have uh, a lot of grandchildren and you know all be able to be of, that influence to your grandchildren and as well. Right? Happy to be at the church we're at. We have been asked to serve as deacons, which I sometimes try to figure out what all that means. Yeah, but uh, we're there, you know. Um, I, I mean, I I see you providing a lot of stability so, to the church as well. People we, just know that you're there. The the consistency of your life and your family, it's been uh, help to me and to John and Susan, I'm mm -hmm. sure, and Henry and Liz and all the others as well. So, well, we hope that we're appreciated and at least accepted, and we want to be there as long as we can. So, <laughs> so no, this has been a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Yeah, about I you appreciate uh, taking the time for to hear. I often often thought about maybe sometimes telling my story a little bit because I I seen the one that you did with John Dyke the other day, and I think it really pricked my interest. I haven't seen all your podcasts. I've seen a few. Yeah. Because um, so, I have other ones that I listen to. That's kind of another routine with with me. I, I listen to Through the Bible with Jay Werner McGee every morning. Yeah. Been doing that now for a long time. I really enjoy his teaching too. He's a bit of a old-fashioned type of preacher. You hear the Bible's gospel very clear. Yeah. Don't see everything eye to eye with him, but he's never going to have that. Exactly. And Timothy Keller, I think for you and, and John, I mentioned him quite a bit over in your messages sometimes. So I looked him up. And there, I think there's three podcasts a week that they put out. Yeah. So I try to follow them. And Mark Driscoll right now, he's doing... Um, Real Men? No, he's doing Genesis. Oh, he's, yes. Right, so right, that's right. his Sunday morning service. That's, yeah. I listen to those. So every Monday morning, they're, they're out. And I listen to those. And I love Worst by First Teaching. I think I've, back then with Mike Pearl, too, he did a lot of Worst by First Teaching. Yeah. Where I've learned a lot. So I really, I really like Worst by First Teaching. And uh, so at one time I was so much into my curl where I, I felt like if somebody else did something a little bit different, I didn't quite like it. Yeah. But I've heard to realize that I can't do that. I, I, so I, I try to keep my mind more open to listen to different people. And then sometimes if I don't agree with that's fine. Like a lot of stuff exactly. I do agree with, right? So I think it's good to have a broader... For I'm sure for the same thing for me for a while, I was like everything Michael Pearl says. Mm -hmm. But one thing that he did do for me is that... <laughs> I feel like he made me a student of this book mm -hmm. where I can now read this on my own. There's things I don't understand for sure, right. but I can study a book mm -hmm. and present it now from my own findings, which really helped me to see the scriptures clearly. So. Yeah, amen. So, Right on. I appreciate it. We've right, been well, over an hour. Did we really? Oh my goodness. I didn't think for me being <laughs> not much of a talker that it would take that long. So, Oh, that was good stuff. Well, right. Thank, thank, thank you very much. Yep. Yeah.